morning. Good morning. Um, today the message is coming from Psalm 8. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouths of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes. To steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with the glory and the honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name and all the earth. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. <laughs> I, mean, I, I would drink it. <laughs> Good morning again. If we could uh, somehow like open up the hood of our hearts and take a look at the engine that's driving us, I bet one of the things we would find is a longing for significance. Uh, like we want our lives to count for something. We want to matter in this world. I was with a couple of friends on Friday night and we were sitting outside under uh, what was almost a full moon. And we were talking about life and work and, and some of the things that we try to do uh, to satisfy our longing for significance, like you know, work, parenting, being faithful in our relationships, uh, in our friendships. And I was thinking about how uh, our own efforts to scratch that itch for, for like really mattering, for, for real significance, it never really works. I mean... Uh, not in a way that lasts, at least. Like you can, you can go out and you can accomplish something really great, and you can feel good about it. You know, for for how long? I mean, I guess it depends on how great it is. Like maybe a day, maybe a week, maybe a month, maybe maybe years. But it's like eventually that fades. And um, and then I I also started to think about how, from a certain perspective, like this longing we have for significance uh, is really kind of absurd. I mean, there we were. Three guys sitting out under the moon <laughs> that was like magnificent and beautiful and, and glowing with the light of the sun. And I thought, well, the moon is significant. I mean, that's, um, that's real significance. People, people used to worship the moon. I mean, probably some people still do worship the moon. I started to think about how small we are. You know, there are over 8 billion people now on the face of the planet. It's a lot of people, and uh, you're just one of those people, and I'm just one of those people. That sounds pretty insignificant. One over eight billion. Our sun is one star in over 100 billion stars in our galaxies, and now they're thinking that like the universe, the universe that we can kind of discern, and, and, um, and which is probably just a fraction of the universe, like we think there are like at least 200, um, I want to get this right, 200 billion, I, I don't even know what that means, 200 billion, what does that mean? 
can't fathom that number, 200 billion uh, galaxies in the universe, which makes us just like unimaginably tiny. Um, I read a book last year by a guy named Oliver Bertman, and he points out that if we live, if we live to be 80 years old, we will have lived about 4,000 weeks. 4,000 weeks. See, my mind wants to add a zero. Like surely 40,000 weeks, but no, it's 4,000 weeks. And, and he notes that that is just like absurdly, insultingly short. 4,000 weeks. It seems so small, so insignificant. And yet, this longing for significance that I have is really stubborn. Like pointing out how small I am doesn't make it go away. And I bet it doesn't make it go away for you either. Um, we want to matter. We long for significance. And, and I wonder, like, how do we get it? Like, are we supposed to live our lives trying to prove that we are significant? Trying to, to make the case that we do matter? Like, I think, I think a lot of us do live our lives that way. And I wonder, does it work? Can it work? Years ago, in an interview with Vanity Fair, Madonna, who seems fairly significant, she said this, she said, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage and think, I'm mediocre and uninteresting. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre, and that's always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though, I'm, even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it probably never will. And so raise your hand if you've heard of Madonna. <laughs> you've heard of her. Uh, if you walk into any room full of people pretty much anywhere in the world, chances are most of them will have heard of Madonna. And, and see, she worries that she might not be somebody, that she might not be significant. Like, maybe her life doesn't matter. Maybe she's not special. And if Madonna can't conquer, like, this, this kind of low-grade fear of insignificance with, like, fame and, and musical domination. Like, I wonder why we expect to conquer it by posting something real cool on Instagram. <laughs> or, uh, or, like, getting promoted in our jobs and getting a bigger paycheck. Or, or someone pointed out, I used to have, like, an absurdly large beard. And I look back on that season of my life and I think, where were my friends? And, and, and like, what was, what was going on in the heart? <laughs> like, what, what was going on in my heart where like I, I was attracting that kind of attention to myself? It's just like, like, what makes us think that we can conquer this, this low grade fear with like a big beard? Uh, or, or, by, or by getting promoted or by like, you know, having kids that get into really great schools. Like, I wonder family. What do you think it is that's going to make your life matter? <clears throat> what do you think it is that's going to, that's going to give you significance? Well, uh, that's what Psalm 8 is all about. Um, and so we want to look at this. It tells us that we do, in fact, matter, but the way it gets to that affirmation is so important to see. Because the psalmist begins not by singing about our greatness and how significant we are and how much we matter, but actually singing about God's greatness. Um, like, according to the logic of the psalm, like, we matter because God matters. Like, our significance is rooted in his significance. And so the psalm uh, 
begins and ends with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Um, declaring the greatness of God. Like this is, this is the God who created the heavens and the earth, um, which is such a, I mean, Israel was bold. They were bold to say, our God isn't just like a tribal deity, but our God is the God who created everything. And he is excellent and beautiful and majestic. And so um, the way that the psalm gets at the majesty of God is by considering the night sky. And, you know, when the, when the moon is big, you can't really see the stars. You can't really see the stars that well in Richmond. But if you ever, if you ever go out to the country, and if any of you have ever traveled, like, to the western part of the United States, especially if you get out in the wilderness there, um, you know, far away from the artificial lighting of electricity, the night sky is truly breathtaking. And, and so if the moon and the stars are this glorious, and if they're just like one aspect of God's uh, creation, one of his many works of art, how much greater, how much more majestic must the artist himself be? God's glory is above the heavens, the psalm says. It's greater than sun, moon, and stars. God matters way more than the moon does. You've got to choose between worshiping the moon and worshiping the one who made the moon. Go with the one who made the moon. God matters way more than the moon does. But now get this. Uh, so do you. So do you. Look again at verses 4 and 6. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So let's unpack that a little bit. Like, what does it mean first to be mindful of something? What does it mean to be mindful of something? It's one of those. It's one of those mornings. Should have should have known from John. Yeah. Like keeping it present in your. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I figure it's just to have like your mind full of it, right? Like you're thinking about it. It's present in your thoughts. I think that's right. Like, and, and so imagine that God's mind is filled with you. Like, God, God, um, God is attentive to us, even though we can seem so insignificant. Um, he pays attention to us. He considers us, and, and, which is a way of saying, I think, that like, he really knows us. You know, like, his attention is really on us. He sees us. And he doesn't only know us. He, um, the psalm says that he cares for us which is a way of saying that he loves us. And I wonder if you believe that this morning, that um, the God who spoke the moon and the stars into existence um, like fixes his attention on you and sees you and, and, and fills his mind with you and cares for you like that. I wonder if you can trust that, that you are, some, that you are somebody and it's not because of what you can accomplish and achieve. It's because the Lord who created the heavens and the earth knows you, he sees you, and he cares for you. He loves you. He's mindful of you. Like, we matter um, not because of anything we can do. We matter because God matters, and God turns his attention to us. Every one of us is the work of God's hand. And so you can see that the psalm is really echoing Genesis chapter 1, where we're told that God created humanity in God's image. Like, you and I bear the image of God. Um, 
more than staring at the night sky, staring at another human being ought to lead us to contemplate like the glory and the majesty of God. Um, so, so like look around the room. Around the room. Uh, see, it's a room filled with glory and honor, and it's not because it's you know sacred space in some kind of like magical way. It's not because we, we got a fresh coat of paint on the wall. Although we do, did you notice the fresh coat? <laughs> some, of you, some of you haven't noticed, but now you do. Um, it, it's not because of that, it's because uh, of you and me. Like we're in the room and the room is filled with, with glory and honor. You're sitting next to a human being whom God has crowned with glory and honor. You're sitting next to someone who matters, who is like unimaginably significant. So for the next uh, seven Sundays, we're going to be looking at the Psalms, but I don't want to move entirely away from um, this idea of spiritual training and spiritual practice. And, I'll, and so I'll try to, try to draw our attention to things we might practice um, to grow in our love for God and others as we move through the Psalms. But here's one coming out of this Psalm that I see like, there is an invitation here to practice really seeing the truth about people in this way. Um, an invitation to tune our attention to like the image-bearing glory that the people around us have. Um, are any of you familiar with that? It's, it's fairly well known in some circles, but it's a, it's a commencement address that the late David Foster Wallace gave to Kenyon College. I don't remember what year. It's, yeah, it's... It's so good. Um, I encourage you to go check out the whole thing if you've never read it. But he, in, in that speech, he talks about how difficult it is to really pay attention to people and to really see people. And it's especially difficult to do that like in all of the kind of the boring, mundane, ordinary um, parts of American life. And so, so to get at this, he invites us to imagine ourselves stuck in the checkout line at the grocery store at the end of a long day. Uh, so you're hungry, you're tired, you're just wanting to get home. And, and he talks about just how hard it is to really see people as people in situations like that. And so here's what he says. He says, my natural default setting is the certainty that situations like this are really all about me. And it's going to seem for all the world like everybody else is just in my way. See, I can totally relate to that. Like in the, in the grocery store, People no longer, they're just objects, right? They're objects that you have to navigate around so that you can get out as quickly as possible. Um, he says, but rather than looking at it this way, I can choose to force myself to consider the likelihood that everyone else in the checkout line is just as bored and frustrated as I am, and that some of these people actually have much harder, more tedious, or painful lives than I do overall. And he says, it's hard. He says, it takes will and effort but if you really learn how to pay attention, it will actually be within your power to experience a crowded, hot, slow, consumer hell-type situation <laughs> as not only meaningful, but sacred, like on fire with the same love that lit the stars. Um, but it really does take practice. Like It takes like a, a habit of mind that has to be cultivated and developed in order to move through the world like that. It's not instinctive. Our tendency in situations like that is just to, to not see people at all. So we have to, there's an invitation to learn how to pay attention. 
Um, C.S. Lewis wrote something along the same lines at the end of that great essay he wrote, The Weight of Glory, where he says this, uh, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one, one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. And so again, this invitation to just to practice seeing people. Uh, and, and, then tr- and then treating people as image bearers. You see them, you stop, and then you say, oh, what would it mean to love this person um, as a creature who bears the image of God? Why is that so hard? Why is it hard to see it about others and, and to maybe get back to how we started? Like, how is, why is it so hard to see that about ourselves? Why, like, why are we always wondering, like, gosh, am I crowned with honor and glory? Am, does my life matter? Like, why is there disparity between what the psalm teaches about our status in creation and our day-to-day experience of ourselves and, and other people? Well, according to the Bible story, remember, this all goes back to Genesis chapter 3, when our first parents, like, they decided to move out as rulers of the world without God, and so they, they stopped trusting his love, and they, they rebelled against his grace. They said, we do want to rule, but we want to do it on our terms, and we want to do it without you. And, and so the result is, like, chaos. Like, now our relationship with God and with really the rest of the creation, including ourselves, is is just characterized by conflict and hardship and, and this radical insecurity. Um, God says, have dominion over my world, be stewards of it, caretakers of it, and uh, we just fail <coughs> over and over again. Um, we're not good stewards of the world, and the truth is we aren't really great stewards of ourselves. Um, just speaking for me, like, not a day goes by, family, when I'm not aware on some level of my failing to be, um, you know, the husband I want to be, the father I want to be, the pastor I want to be, the friend I want to be. Um, and, and so even though God's word says I'm glorious, I know that that glory is diminished, um, that God has made me in his image, but but the image is, is twisted and distorted. It's like one of those mirrors you see maybe at like a circus or at, at a fair where it's like the proportions are all <coughs> out of whack. And so God says rule over creation and springtime rolls around and I can't even take care of my backyard. <laughs> so where does this leave us? Where does this leave us? Um, you know, there's a place in the book of Hebrews, where the author of, of that book is wrestling with this exact question. Uh, he, he quotes this psalm about humanity being crowned with glory and honor and about our calling to rule over the world with God's grace 
and care, and he says, we look out at the world and we just don't see it. Like there, there is this gap between the way things are supposed to be and the way things actually are. Humanity is supposed to like faithfully reflect God's gracious rule over creation, but instead we're just making a mess of things. He says, we don't, we don't see this vision of glory being lived out by humanity, but the author of Hebrews says, we see Jesus. He says, we see Jesus. Um, and, and so what he's doing, the author of Hebrews, is he's reading through Psalm 8, and, and he's reading it through the lens of Jesus Christ. Um, he, he applies the psalm not to, to you and me, not to humanity in general, but he applies it to this one person in particular, Jesus. And, and by the way, that's a really good way to read not just Psalm 8, but to read all of the psalms. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, if we want to read and pray the psalms, we must not ask first what they have to do with us, but what they have to do with Jesus Christ. And, and that's what the author of Hebrews does. He reads Psalm 8 asking, what does this have to do with Jesus Christ? And, and then he writes this. He says, Jesus was made lower than the angels for a little while, and he is now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And so, so the author of Hebrews is thinking about the incarnation and the death and the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus, and he's saying that, in, in the life of Jesus, that is where we see Psalm 8 come true. Uh, we, we, look at out the, we look out at the world and we don't see humanity living out in, in, in um, God's intended creational purposes for us, but we see Jesus. The eternal Son of God made lower than the angels for a little while, while he's living for us and dying for us. And now Jesus, who is still fully God and fully human, is crowned with glory and honor and, and reigning at the right hand of God the Father. And you might wonder, well, that's great for Jesus, but how does that really address the fact that I'm not who I'm supposed to be today? How does it address my weakness and feelings of insignificance and my inability to manage my own life well, much less to have any kind of meaningful dominion over the world? And I think that's a really good question, and I don't know that I have a great answer for it, other than to point us to something that the New Testament emphasizes over and over again, and it's this idea that um, we are in Christ. And so that what is true of Jesus is true of us. And in, in really deep ways, um, the, the best illustration I, I have for this is one that most of you all have heard. Uh, so you remember, you'll remember this, because I think I shared it probably not too long ago. But uh, when I was in sixth grade, um, you remember, like, I had this uh, shelf in my bedroom that was just full of basketball trophies. And, uh, like, for every year I played basketball, first through fifth grade, I played on the same team of guys, and we were unstoppable. I mean, we were, we were undefeated every season. We, we brought home these big, like, absurdly large first-place <laughs> trophies, and they just went right onto my shelf at home. And... The thing is, is like, I was a horrible basketball player. I mean, as you can imagine, right, looking at me, I was just really, really bad. Uh, I, 
I literally did not score a single point in five seasons of play, first through fifth grade. Um, and, and, the, and then at the end of each season, I would go home with this great first place trophy. And, and these weren't trophies that I had stolen from other players. Like, these were, this, it was my trophy, like it was rightfully mine. And, and how, how? Uh, because I was on that team, right? Because the accomplishments of the team counted for me uh, and, and so when the all-star, you know, fifth grader would shoot the, the game-winning point right, right at the buzzer, it's basically like I was doing that. <laughs> I mean, I got, I got to share in that glory. And it's a dumb example, but something like that, something like that is going on when the New Testament talks about our being in Christ, our being united to Christ. It means that we share in all that is his. It means that his life and death and resurrection become the truest things about us. The truest thing about you is Jesus Christ. And, and so his faithfulness is your faithfulness. And his perfect love for God and others, it, it counts for us. Like his death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. And so if we ask the question, are you significant? Does your life matter? Um, are you somebody? Well, family, I figure, like, to, if you just keep looking at yourself, you're never going to really know. You're always going to wonder. You're always going to question whether you've done enough, whether you've shown enough, whether you've displayed enough glory. Like, that, will that will never answer the question for you. But if you take your eyes off yourself, and if you look at Jesus... And then if you ask, well, does he matter? Is Jesus significant? See, he is your life. Christ is your life. And so look here, if you can see it, at this little table. Um, God is mindful of you. And he does care for you. And I think we have to make a decision like, is that enough? Is it enough to know that, that God sees us and loves us? Is that enough for us? Um, is it enough to know that the God who made the heavens and the earth is mindful of you? And not in an abstract way. Um, he's, he's mindful of you in the way that a good father might invite you to have a meal at his table. He doesn't care for you in abstraction, but he cares for you by laying down his life, by giving you nothing less than uh, all of who he is, his very self. And so as we come to the table this morning, uh, we can practice seeing Jesus, and we can practice seeing each other. We can practice... Um, you know, Lewis, what did Lewis say? Next to the Blessed Sacrament itself, like your neighbor is the holiest, the holiest thing presented to your senses. And so we're about to experience a whole lot of holiness because we're going to meet with Jesus at his table and we're going to meet with Jesus at his table together, surrounded by people who bear the image of God, surrounded by people for whom Jesus laid down his life and love. So let's pray.